Hello, fellow high flyers. This is Philip Hatting, and welcome to the Career Ladder Podcast, the podcast that inspires ambitious people on their path to success. Each episode, I interview movers and shakers from various fields, and it is my goal to explore their habits and success strategies. My guest today is Elle Peaceland. Elle works in Formula One for Williams Racing as Head of Technical and Innovation Partnerships. Apart from his passion for engineering and fast racing cars, he is also a karate fifth dawn black belt. What this means and how he got to such a proficiency in martial arts, Elle will explain in the podcast. At some point, we also talk about books. Hence, I've put all the titles and authors mentioned by Elle in the show notes. Feel free to check them out. One of my highlights of the conversation is when Elle explains what happens in your body when you're nervous because of a meeting with the CEO or because of a keynote in front of a big crowd. So if you want to find out how to handle this kind of nervousness and how to potentially use it for your advantage, keep listening and you'll find out. Without further ado, here's today's guest, L. Peaceland. L, welcome to the podcast. I was very much looking forward to this conversation today, as I still clearly remember how the two of us met, which was uh, back in 2016. And I was an intern at Red Bull back then, and you came to a German town called Karlsruhe, a small town in Germany, to give a lecture in front of a thousand of students on your work at Red Bull Racing. And um, Red Bull Racing back then was the Formula One team that you worked for. And I had the honor to be your driver to pick you up from the airport. And uh, I still remember, probably you too, that I already bombarded you with questions whilst we were driving in the car. And that is something I would love to continue today in the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the interview with you. No, well, hi, Philip. It's good to hear from you again. Sorry, it's been so long since we... Uh we last spoke but I, I remember that trip well um, and yeah it was great spending time with you I have to say thanks for, for all the help with um, the headaches with flights that I had if I remember rightly as well so uh, <laughs> yeah you definitely helped me out massively during that trip. Yeah I still remember in the morning at like seven o'clock or something your flight got cancelled and would be, we had to organize a new one spontaneously but eventually it worked out somehow you got back to the UK safely and um, it worked out. And, and those trips are always great. For, you know, you guys and some of the other brand managers for the other universities I visited just always took really good care of me. It was um, they were always really professionally run events and just really good fun to be part of. So, um, so yeah, it was. Uh, thanks for looking after me then, and um, yeah, looking forward to chatting more today. Cool. Yeah. So, L, I would say let us jump right into it and uh, start with the fir first question. And I'd like to start with something that I stumbled across whilst doing homework for this conversation, actually. And it is an interview from 2013 in which you mentioned that, now this is a quote, most of my career I have been doing things in a slightly roundabout way. And maybe we could start with you explaining a bit about the statement in general and also how the roundabout way is a common threat running through your career. Yeah, I guess um, I guess what I mean by that is that um, I've never, maybe more recently things have changed, but um, but I've never really had a plan with my career, which is not something to be recommended. 
And so I've always said that if I if I look back at my career, I can absolutely join the dots and I can understand how I've moved from one position to another, how people that I've been working with or come into contact with during one position have maybe had a part to play in my next career move. So it's and I'm pretty sure that's the same for everyone. You know, we, we can always look back at our timeline and see how we got from A to B. But if I was back at 16 years of age, just about to leave school, there's no way I could have predicted the route that I've taken to end up where I am today. And uh, and as I say, I think, you know, that's kind of cool because, you know, every twist and turn you take, you uh, you pick up new skills, new attributes, you learn new things. It's all part of part of uh, life, I guess. But um, but in terms of having more of a structured approach and a plan, maybe that's uh, maybe that's something I need to do a better job of. But um you know, I think it's what's interesting is every role, when I look back now, every role has allowed me to move slightly up the tree a little in terms of seniority or experience, broadening my experience. And all of those learnings each time then give me a different viewpoint. They give them, it's almost like climbing a tree, your, your view changes, your view of the landscape changes. So then your opinions change and what you believe to be true yesterday may now not be true because you've got a different perspective on things. And so I think that's, you know, my career's helped me do that. It's helped me broaden my background. It's why I've moved into different departments over the time, you know, through my career, picked up new skills, learn new attributes, and then apply them to the next position. So, so yeah, it's been, uh, it's definitely not been a logical path. And, uh, and just like the role I'm in now probably isn't a, um, I didn't get into motorsport in the most obvious way. It wasn't always a burning ambition as a child to work in Formula One. So I've almost accidentally, it was a kind of a happy accident, if you like, that I've ended up in, in this space now. But yeah, I guess um, I guess the real trick to that's just having some courage and saying yes to any opportunity that pops up and then seeing what happens, you know? Sure, yeah, definitely agree. Maybe um, you could give some insights on your current role. You work for Williams Racing in the Formula One still. And your official title is Head of Technical and Innovation Partnerships. Maybe you can just explain a bit what your field of work is and share some insights. Yeah, so my, my, role, um, my role is essentially to be the engineer within marketing. So my background is mechanical engineering, which is really the basis of how we first come to meet, meeting technical students and engineering students and exciting them about the world of motorsport. So as an engineer, what I've been able to do is transition from more practical and engineering roles within the sport into a marketing and commercial role. So I wear two hats. My, one, one part of my day is to help support the team's technology partnerships. So think of those as sponsors, but who are bringing technology to the team rather than just cash. And as a result, they want to be showcased. The, the, the whole point is that we as a team are choosing that technology as best-in-class solutions. It's helping us gain a competitive advantage. And my job is to help those partners showcase that and grow their own business and win, win more deals. The other hat I wear is to support the commercial team and work inside commercial to help find new technology partners. And that, that's kind of cool because it means I get to liaise with all of the business. So I, I, have, to, I have to work alongside all of the department heads across the business, find out what their challenges are, Where are the gaps in technology that they really need help with? And then work with them to find the right partner who can bring that, that technology to the team and then build a partnership and a commercial proposition around that. So it's, um, 
yeah it's um it's it's kind of cool it's it's uh, an interesting position for an engineer by trade to be it's fairly niche i'm very you know i've been with williams now just over a year i left motorsport after a after about 11 years with uh, Rebel Racing and tried a few other things out, which is part of my crazy roundabout career and have managed and been very fortunate that Williams have created the role for me. They've given me a chance and welcomed me back into motorsport, into what is, in my opinion, one of the, well, it, it certainly is a family team. It's the team with one of the most um, prestigious heritages in the sport and, and, it yeah it feels like you're part of a of a small family all pulling together to to move forwards all in the same direction it's um the culture's really cool and it's just it's a team that i've always wanted to have a part to play in and so really fortunate to be there now so yeah so that that's my role that's um that's what i get what i get up to cool so the engineering knowledge um that you touched on is really crucial in your role as far as i understood and um especially at Formula One is well known for high class engineering, but also, I mean, speaking for myself, watching it on TV and uh, reading the stories about Formula One, it is very much connected with a glamorous lifestyle, you could say. And um, it involves traveling all around the world. So this season would have been planned. There would have been uh, races planned in just to name a few, Australia, Vietnam, China, Canada, Brazil, And uh, now with COVID-19, obviously, the schedule changed a bit and the sport also changed. And uh, most of the races are in Europe. But I would like to talk, I would like to talk about the uh, topic of traveling a bit for now, because your job involves a high amount of traveling, obviously, um, traveling to the races and to the different countries. And in the context of traveling, I'm curious, firstly, How do you manage to stay productive whilst fly around, flying around the world? And secondly, also, do you have any travel hacks for people out there to battle jet lag, for example, or also tips on working remotely in general, which is a very important topic with the current situation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll, be, uh, I'll be the first to admit whilst I, in a normal year, I do travel fair bit there there are lots of people i know travel a lot more than me so i'm still not the uh, the expert traveler but i'll happily uh, happily offer some hacks in a moment if it, it uh, if it helps anyone um i guess what's um what's what's changed over the time that i've been certainly in in engineering and traveling and even back to you know the early days in the aerospace world that i was in um and having to travel to europe on and the us on business there um, technology has totally changed the way we we can travel and stay productive. You know, it's it's um, it doesn't matter where you're traveling to these days. Particularly if you can get into an airport lounge or you work from a hotel, you've, you're always going to have some kind of Wi-Fi signal. You've always got the ability to remain on and connected. And so so it means then even when you're traveling, if you're working, you know. You know, on different time zones, you can stay connected. You can deal with all of your day-to-day -day emails and conversations, and and just like now with COVID, you know, we're we're pushing um, webinars and we're pushing teleconferences and to to the max now, and um, and it's delivering. We're able to carry on with our business when we're all working from home and working remotely, and that's no real, that's no different really to when we're traveling. So, yeah, whether I'm on a flight. The, probably the one thing that, that is a shame is that now on long haul, they have Wi-Fi on long haul. And so uh, 
the chance of being able to switch off on flights is also limited. But but yeah, you know, on a flight, in a hotel, in an airport lounge, at the racetrack, we're always connected, and so I can uh, can get on with work, and it's not a problem. Cool. Do you have some and, hacks? Maybe? And some or, some hacks. Yeah. yeah. So I'd say the one thing you mentioned was jet lag. Yeah. And and one of the things I uh, I try to avoid is I I don't give it a name. It's just like a silly habit that I have. But I think if you give something a name, you can attach to it. And then you have, almost have a crutch and an excuse to be tired because you say, oh, I'm jet lagged. I can't, I'm not functioning right now. And you almost give yourself an excuse to, to not be functional. So if I don't attach to it and I don't assign a tag to it, then uh, then I have no excuse. And, um, you know, I'm sure we've all had late nights with friends or we've not been able to sleep for whatever reason. And we've still got up in the morning and we've gone to work and we've still functioned. We might be tired, but we just muscle through. And so I kind of treat it like that. So I get off a flight. If I'm tired, I just put it down to being tired and I've got to crack on and work anyway. So the first first hack would be try not to just dwell on it. Don't feel sorry for yourself about it. Almost muscle up a little and just get on. Um, so that's the first thing. What I tend to do, see, I'm, I'm, I don't tend to make much of a plan. A lot of people talk about um, trying to change their sleep patterns in advance of a long haul flight. I just, I just don't really entertain that. I just, I sleep when I'm tired and I stay awake when I need to be awake and I just power through and the body somehow figures it out. Um, and it's not comfortable and sometimes trips can be more um, fatiguing than others, but you just get on with it. And it, it is a case of the more you do, the more you get used to that feeling. So it probably doesn't feel any better. You're just able to cope with it more and just and deal with it more. But um, but yeah, it's um, it's for me, it's, you know, I do try to have a little routine though. So often I'll, you know, eat in the airport lounge and not on the flight. And that way, if I want to go to sleep straight away, as soon as I get on the plane, I don't have to wait till I've eaten and blah, blah, blah. So, so yeah, but you know, I just, like I say, I just see it as just a normal part of the job and try not to make, make too much of a, a fuss about it. Um, one thing I do tend to do though, so a good tip that I was told and works really well for me is if I get off a long haul, and I'm now on a wrong time zone. My body wants to sleep, but I've got to stay awake for a few hours. I always go and do some exercise. So as soon as I'm off the flight, assuming I'm not going straight to the racetrack or straight to work, I'll go and hit the hotel gym or I'll go outside for a run and just try and use the exercise to, you know, to wake the body back up. And it really works. So I, I try to do that and keep an exercise routine going while I'm while I'm in another time zone trying to work. It's um, I think it's just good good just to keep the body going um always download loads of content onto my ipad because you know it's nothing worse than a long haul and the tv not working or you, you by the time you know if you're traveling certainly speak to some of my colleagues in in the race teams that are flying constantly they very quickly get through all of the all of the the in-flight movies that are uh, available for that particular month so yeah download some documentaries from netflix or wherever else you use and uh you know get some content pre-made and uh and one little tip that i that i do and it's probably because i'm uh, a bit anal and a bit of an engineer but is i will i will do myself a crib sheet of all my logistics so my flight numbers my itinerary my hotel address phone number um how you know wh where i'm going to be um, because it's just really handy to have that little one page when you're in a foreign country, you may not speak the language and you need to show the cab driver which hotel to take you to, or you've got to fill in the immigration cards and it's just it saves you routing through your bag on the flight for your passport and then your, your, you know, your boarding pass and everything else 
keep a little one pager in your pocket that's just got everything that's uh, that's your itinerary just anything you can do to make your life a bit easier and then the best gift i was ever given for for flights are some very good noise cancelling headphones cannot be without them they just I agree yeah they just save a lot of pain you can get to sleep it just gets rid of that drone on the aircraft and yeah totally worth it totally worth it but i'll i'll give you one final tip that um that I, I used to do and I thought was really cool to boast about, but um, but I now don't. And it was every time I got on a flight, the first thing I would do for a long call, the first thing I would do would be to get straight into the one of the, the toilets and change into my, you know, into my comfies, into my gym jams or, you know, my, 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 my comfy relaxing clothes. Um, the problem with that is, which is great because you don't then have to wait until you're airborne and the seatbelt signs are removed before you can go and get changed and settle down for a sleep. So you can get to sleep before you've even taken off. And that all sounds great until one flight I had where I did that. And then there was a technical problem with the flight and we were all eventually told to disembark. And so before I could leave the flight, I had to do like a hasty dash to the toilet, get changed again. And it was all just really stressful. So, um, so yeah, I'm a little bit uh, paranoid now, so I don't now, but, uh, but it was a good, it was a good fun at the time to boast about it of how cool you are getting into your gym jams before you've even taken off. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my flight hacks. There's probably loads of others that other travelers could tell you, but that would be the, uh, the first few that comes to the top of my mind. It's indeed a very engineering approach to traveling, I would say. I, I love the itinerary with all the details printed out on one page. That's great. Yeah, I, it sounds like I'm really well organized, but I genuinely am not. But it's just, yeah, it's one thing that I try to do when I remember. I'll try it out maybe for the next great travel. So, Al, um, when you arrive then in one of those countries in a new time zone for, for a race on the weekend, um, what does your day look like then on a race weekend or on a race day especially what happens there yeah so i mean obviously things are very different at the moment the uh, covid is obviously impacting all sports worldwide but for formula one it's impacted it mo mostly in the fact that we don't have fans and guests at the racetrack at the moment which is why i'm not traveling to the races my my role just simply isn't needed there but on a normal year let's say and a normal race weekend my role can vary I'm usually only going to a race if I have one of the partners that I work with are having a big activation, maybe bringing a lot of customers to the racetrack or they're having a conference wrapped around the race weekend and they want someone from the Williams team to come and speak to their guests to showcase their technology and be the team's spokesperson and representative. So my, my activity at a race weekend then could be you know, varied depending on what those activations are. Uh, a good example would be meeting media on usually on a Thursday. Partners may invite media to the racetrack. So usually trade media, trade journals around their particular industry sector. And I would meet those journalists. We we may even meet away from the circuit for maybe a breakfast meeting where I can I can deliver a presentation on the partnership and the sport and what we do. And then we guide them into the racetrack. We take them inside the garage where the cars are being prepared and they get to see all of the technology in use and, um, you know, and, and finish off the interview with any of the questions over, over lunch typically. But that would be maybe one activation. Equally, then that evening, I may be invited to a function or a conference that our partners are involved in. So the days can be quite long, uh, fairly varied in, in and amongst all that. The best place to have 
potential you know, partnership meetings or commercial meetings are at the racetrack because it shows the the new partner or the new potential partner what they can get through the partnership what the experience is like what the showcasing can be like so i'll have commercial meetings teed up before i go to the race weekend so that i can maximize the use of my time there and try and get the best value for my trip so um so yeah and then if it's if it's not working with partners it's um it's sitting in a very small office crammed in with all my colleagues um working on day-to-day stuff um you know we even though we're away from home it's it's a working day even the saturday sunday is just a day for us to be in front of the laptop get stuff done arguably if you spend all day in front of the laptop while you're at the racetrack you've got a question why you flew to the race but um but invariably filling in gaps of your day by you know getting work done in a small office is uh, is just part of the course i guess the irony with the whole thing is that as a team member you're so busy and you're so consumed with everything that's going on that I'm probably the last person to ask how the race, how the race went, you know, what happened in the race, even though I was at the racetrack. You don't, you very rarely get to see very much of the race. You're usually chatting to customers and chatting to guests or running around the racetrack trying to find someone. And so, um, so yeah, the irony is you get a better understanding of the race if you stay at home than you do if you fly all the way to the racetrack. But uh, I guess that's just, that's part of the business. But yeah, that, that's kind of a typical day. Um, but as I say, I'll only go traveling when I needed and when there's activity that uh, warrants my presence. Otherwise, I'm predominantly factory based in the UK. So let's say someone listening right now could imagine to um, have similar days whilst flying to the race tracks and meeting partners there and um, experiencing the Formula One lifestyle, I would call it right now. And um, let's say it's a young person that would like to apply for a job with um, with Williams Racing. And let us just maybe quickly imagine you're interviewing an applicant or yeah, could be a university graduate, for example. Um, what skills and character traits are you looking for in that person then? And maybe if you like, you can also share some questions that you, you would ask in an interview. Yeah, good, good question. So um, the first thing I'd say from a recruiting perspective is that You know, we're, we're very fortunate in the industry that we're in that it is so high profile that when you do have a vacancy and you advertise publicly for it, you often have the challenge of having to deal with the high volume of applicants rather than not enough. And so um, so it's kind of a nice problem to have, but it's still a, a challenge nonetheless, because from all of those applicants, then finding the right one can be can be more work. So um, so that's the kind of that's the situation we have. I'll be honest, particularly in more of the marketing and commercial role, I tr tend to shy away from the what I'd call the Uber fan, you know, the the absolute diehard F1 fan as a as a as an employee. Not to say that there aren't diehard fans that are absolutely perfect for the job, but the reason I say that is because often you can find that someone who sees the sport from the outside who's super excited about it they're very much wrapped up in the glamour and the thrill and the excitement and may not appreciate just how much hard work is required and, and actually what it's like on the other side of the fence um, you know they're long days it's hard work it's stressful it's not as glamorous as it first appears it's certainly not champagne and caviar in front of the tv cameras every day so um, you know it's 
it's kind of making sure that someone who's applying for the job has that expectation set that this is what the real world behind the scenes in Formula One is really like. Don't get me wrong, it's hugely rewarding. It's, um, you know, it's amazing to be part of this amazing sport, but it's not all glamorous and it's not all first class and business jet flights everywhere. It's, you know, it's it's a lot of effort and it's, um, and it's a competitive environment. And so it's making sure that the applicant comes in with their eyes wide open. And that's, I think that's important. Um, what do I look for? Um, I always live by the mantra that I will recruit people first and skill second. And the reason I do that is because with the right attitude, that individual can train, they can be upskilled, they can be coached. And let's face it, most jobs we apply for, we're not 100% tick for every box, for every requirement that role has. We're probably just the best fit or the most adaptable or the one who's likely to get there quicker than everyone else. You know, the person who's agile, willing to learn, quick to adapt, all of those things. And that's all about the person, not their skill. That's why the subject that they chose for their degree isn't as important as the fact that they've spent those years committed and dedicated and hardworking and studied and made it happen. So it's, yeah, people first, skill second. That's that's the mantra I would normally go with. Um, and then I'm looking for breadth of character. So I'm looking for, for people who have, you know, they do charity work. They, for want of a better expression, they get off their backside and do stuff even when there's no money involved. They're doing it for others. They're doing it for a team or for a committee or for charity or for the greater good. And people that have lots of stuff going on as extracurricular activity, I, I'm really interested in because, again, it just shows an interesting character, someone who's prepared to work hard, you know, be passionate about something and, and put the time and effort in. And so, yeah, I'm looking for people who are good team players. I always say that to be a good team player, you have to be a great individual. So you have to understand your own strengths and weaknesses. And then you can then you can start to figure out how do you fit within a team. And then you can try and be a team player and help others and be, you know, be supportive and compassionate for your colleagues. But you, you need to be a good individual as well. And so I'm looking for someone that's got a bit of both. You know, we've just talked about the traveling Formula One. Imagine that you and I have worked together all Monday morning. We've worked we've worked from 7.30 in the morning. We've been in the office. We've been prepping the week ahead. We're working together. And then at 6 p.m. at night, we're going to get in a, a taxi together. We're going to go to the airport. We're going to spend time in the lounge at the airport together. We're going to do a long haul flight. I'll be honest, I may not chat to you very much on the flight. Um, we're going to get to the other end where we're on a totally different time zone. And we may then either have to go straight to work or go to the hotel and say, do you fancy a drink in the bar later? I need to have people, you know, and the sport is so steeped in teamwork. I need to have people that we can we can work all day together and then still want to hang out within the evening and have that bond because we definitely would spend more time together within the team than we would with our own family at home. So yeah, that is, you know, is this someone, the person I want to hang out with and share a beer with and spend you know 24/7 with over a race weekend. I think that's that's the kind of people we're looking for. Um, but yeah, team player comes first. I mean, it's it's all about can you gel in the team? Can you know, can you work together? There's no room in this sport for um, for kind of freewheeling and just you know kind of being dead weight if you like. It's it's so competitive that everyone has to everyone has to contribute. Everyone has to pull, but you've all got to pull in the same direction. So yeah, all comes back to teamwork.
People first, skills second. That's a mantra to remember. So, speaking of interviews, another story that caught my attention whilst doing homework for this conversation was that back in the day, you mentioned that you went to interviews with black eyes after heavy martial arts training on the weekends. And uh, we will talk about your passion for martial arts in a moment. But for now, I'm curious, is it really true that you went to interviews with black eyes? Yeah, you've done your homework. Um, so yeah, it is true. Uh, I think it was an interview with an old friend of mine that I used to train martial arts with, if I remember rightly. Um, it's very early in the days when I was, uh, you know, looking for jobs as a, as a young engineer. And uh, I was training heavily in martial arts then and often picked up injuries. And I remember one of my uh, uh, training partners had said, you know, if, if you're, you're okay going, you know, you've got job interviews and you've got meetings at work, are you okay going with injuries? And, uh, and, and I always just thought that it was something that I should embrace. Uh, I'm not going to put makeup on and go into an interview and try and hide it. So, and I'm certainly not going to cancel the, the, the job interview. So what I thought was try and spin it and just make a, you know, acknowledge it right at the beginning of the interview, explain what it is. And, uh, and almost try and make fun of it. And, and I found that um, whilst I wouldn't recommend getting black eyes before you go to an interview, what I found was it was at least one way of standing out from the crowd. Um, obviously, you've got to be able to back this up. So you've got to have some talent or some skills that helps you get the job. But when you are going for a job interview, certainly as a young engineer, and there are you know, a huge amount of applicants, you need to find ways of setting yourself apart from the crowd and giving the interviewer something to remember you by so that when they review the CVs and they and they review all of their interviews for that day with their colleagues, how do you get front of mind? How do you get your CV to the top of the list? So not a very conventional way of standing out, but um, but I think it was just important to, to embrace it and acknowledge it and, and, you know, and try not to go to work with too many black eyes. It doesn't look good over the long term. But yeah, it, it's true. It happened. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it didn't impact me too badly. So uh, hopefully I found a positive from that. Now let's dig into the topic of martial arts. You are a fifth dan black belt senior instructor with the British Combat Association. I hope I got that right. And I wonder how does someone, and this is as much for me as for the people listening, become a fifth dan in karate. Could you elaborate a bit on the journey to becoming a fifth dan black belt? Yeah, absolutely. And um, as long as you've got some time, because it's probably uh, a lengthy answer. But um, I've been fortunate. I've studied quite a variety of martial arts. And each art has its own grading systems and different lengths of time it takes to get to what people know as black belt or first dan. Uh, the, the original art I started was Shotokan Karate. And that art, like many others, has multiple grades of black belt, so multiple dan grades. Um, to get to fifth dan takes considerable amount of time because just to in Shotokan, just to get to first dan, assuming you're training frequently enough and you don't have any interrupted training, then you're looking at at least three to four years to get to your first dan. And then the, the system works that for every following Dan grade, you have to add an extra year before you're even able to apply to grade. So first Dan to second Dan is two years. Second Dan to third Dan is three years. And, and so it, assuming you're good enough and you can pass all of those grades, just getting to fifth Dan means, like me, you end up being quite an old individual anyway. Um, from fifth Dan onwards, the grades often, again, depending on the art, become more uh, honorary and awarded. And so it's very much then you're being looked at more about your 
um, your approach to the arts, what you're giving back, how you're now teaching. Usually, you know, by the time you get into the downgrades, you start to move into more of an instructor role. And, uh, and you're being assessed more on the holistic view rather than just do you know the moves and do you know how to you know, demonstrate them at each level. So it's, um, yeah, it takes a long time and it's a lot of commitment. And I think the challenge with getting to any senior grade in any art is the, the charting the progress and monitoring your progress because it's so small, it's almost impossible to, to see. You, it's very difficult to see your own development over that period of time. So it takes a huge amount of faith and commitment and dedication to just stay the course. And so, um, so for me, one of the things that helped with that was adding other arts to, to the, the, the training that I did and blending lots of different arts. So I studied things like Greco-Roman and freestyle wrestling, which is the American collegiate wrestling, uh, some Russian sombo wrestling. Um, I studied a bit of judo. I did a lot of Western boxing. And now more recently studying uh, Jeet Kune Do, which is some may, again, depending how old the listeners are, some may remember Bruce Lee. So JKD or Jeet Kune Do is Bruce Lee's art. And we're fortunate to have some of the best instructors in the world that I can train with that are helping teach me that. And, and JKD is cool because it's, it's also a mixture of various arts that have all been brought and blended together. And so it actually kind of underpins all of my approach and philosophy to training since I started. So I guess what I would say is that there's a there's a saying in the martial arts that a black belt is a white belt that just didn't give up. And and I think that's probably true. I think that's fair to say you're, you're not an expert when you get to black belt. Just the same as I'd say the day you passed your driving test suddenly didn't make you a, a professional driver. You're you're only one day different from the day before when you were still a learner. So once you get your black belt, that's really when the learning starts and you really are just um, a master of the basics. And then you start to really learn and develop. My, my brother, for example, my brother Mick, he trains in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. That's a 10 year journey if you have very good instruction to get from beginner to black belt. That's a huge amount of time to invest and such a gradual progress that it's almost impossible to see your development. So again, takes a huge amount of commitment. And what um, what my brother says and everyone in the in that particular art says is that by the time you get to first dan, you will have faced defeat thousands upon thousands of times. In in the art, it's there's a lot of ground fighting and there's a lot of um, submission. You're fighting for a submission. You're fighting to get your opponent to tap out and submit to your technique. And so as your learning process involves you doing lots of fighting, invariably you're going to lose a lot and you're going to have tapped out an awful lot. So it's, it's actually, can you tap out, face defeat, learn from that and come back and keep coming back and keep coming back. And so it really is, um, it really is a demonstration of someone's commitment and dedication, not necessarily just their proficiency in the art. It's, you know, it's this far deeper than that. So it's, um, you know, I think that's, that's really, you know, my, well, I would say is a quick intro to martial arts, but for me, it's more about the journey. It's a real cliche, you know, we always say it's about the journey, not the destination. And, and I think that's never more true than in martial arts because of that reason, because it's such a lengthy journey. And so like anything that's difficult to achieve, you need to have a really good reason why. For me, the reason was that when I was young at school, I was bullied. I was bullied relentlessly. And so my initial 
reason for studying martial arts was very much just for self-defense. And what I realized was that, um, you know, self-defense is almost just a free byproduct of the arts. Over time, you start to realize it's offering you a lot more. And, and I think that's, you know, again, something that I've been very lucky is that I've been able to train with some of quite literally the best martial artists in the world. And that's bigging them up, not me. Um, that's enabled me to discover far richer information than just being able to beat my bullies and getting good at self-defense. I, I think what's unique about martial arts and maybe some other sports and pastimes, but for me, certainly my experience with martial arts is that it's one of the few, it's one of the few sports or pastimes where on any day of the year, certainly any weekend you wish for very little, very little money, you can pick up the phone you can jump in your car and you can go and train and get instruction from quite literally some of the best people in the world. Imagine imagine picking up the phone and going taking some serves off Roger Federer or getting some, you know, you know, getting some advice on your golf swing by Tiger Woods for 50 pounds. It's just impossible. But yet in martial arts, you can literally train with people of the same caliber for next to no money. And I've been really fortunate that when I started martial arts, I had an instructor who actively encouraged that and, and showed me that it, there's more than just training in one system and training under one instructor. There's a, there's a huge wealth of knowledge out there and it's accessible. So I made a point of getting out there and trying to train with as many people as I could. And now, I don't know, 34 years, 35 years on, I'm really proud that who people who were my heroes are now my instructors and also my friends. And so it's, it's, you know, it's been a very humbling experience, but one that's, you know, I would recommend to anyone it's is so accessible. Um, and I think that's just, I think that's just a really, you know, just a really cool element of the martial arts, the people you can hang out with it, it transitions, um, it transitions countries, languages, um, people's different backgrounds and you know I can be on the map with a lawyer and a mechanic and everything of every discipline the, the network you create is amazing and, uh, and I have to say that's a massive plus point from it but um, but I think the, the real lesson is you know going back to the journey not the destination to practice to perfect a single technique takes a huge amount of dedication a huge amount of practice a huge amount of professional instruction you know, they say um, perfect practice makes perfection. So you, you you need to have good instruction and all of the things that, that allow you to create or develop a good single technique are great lessons that you can apply into uh, into other parts of your life. It's, it's as I say, it's the lesson and the process that is the, the real, the, the magic there, not just being able to defend yourself at the end of it. Initially, you mentioned that as you progress in martial arts and especially in karate, that uh, the approach to the arts itself becomes more important than the bare skills of the moves. So could you tell a bit about the philosophy of martial arts, especially against the background of drawing inspiration from its philosophy for self-development and also career matters? Yeah, absolutely. And This is probably going to be an even longer answer, so ho hopefully you're sitting comfortably. Um, let me start by giving you an analogy. So cross-training. Cross-training is a big thing now, and basically it's it's a way of bringing lots of different exercises together to, to create a more holistic fitness exercise. It's still 
using one area which is training and physical exercise but essentially it's bringing multiple sports and multiple disciplines together so when i started martial arts that as i just mentioned that's what we did i studied various arts in order to try to complement what i was learning and and grow the art and grow my my skills within it i think where it gets more interesting is when we get into the philosophy of martial arts and what we have we call Budo or the way, which is all about the, the underlying teachings and the process rather than just the technique. And karate is steeped on it, as are a lot of the more traditional martial arts. It's all about you know, that learning process. And, and I think that's really, really where we get to where what I've been able to do is take from the martial arts that philosophy and, and find parallels with other parts of my life, whether it's career, relationships, personal development, and take those learnings and apply them to help those different areas uh, move forwards as well. And I think what's interesting is when I started to transition from a student to an instructor, I realized then that as an instructor in the martial arts, there are a huge amount of learnings that can help with leadership, with team leading, with business and management decisions. And, and certainly from a career perspective, taking that martial arts philosophy, if you like, and applying it to, a, to my career has been, a, has been a, a real insight and something that I've, um, I've discovered as I've, I've gone through that. Um, I, I'm a big fan of quotes. Um, one of my quotes that I really like is, don't lead where you won't go and don't teach what you don't know. And as a martial arts instructor, that is fundamental. So I would never ask my students to do something that either I haven't done in the past, wouldn't do now, or haven't been prepared to do. You know, it's all about leading from the front and leading by example. Um, it's also my responsibility to teach my students everything I know. So I'm, I'm not just going to hold back techniques so that when I spar my students, I've always got a little secret technique up my sleeve I can catch them with. It's about teaching them everything. And, and one of my old instructors, um, he had a really good phrase where he, you know, a, a statement that he made about giving everything to your students. A lot of instructors are, and I've seen it quite a lot, a lot of instructors will only demonstrate and teach techniques that they look good doing. And it's a real ego thing. And, and that's fine when you're doing seminars and you need to demonstrate your abilities and wow the crowd. But what it means is you're probably not going to be teaching your students things that you don't look good doing. And as a result, then that is stuff that your students just simply never find out about. They never learn. So your knowledge of the martial arts gets reduced when you pass it on to your students because you've simply not taught them elements that you just don't look good doing. The important thing for me is that then when they go on and become instructors, if they repeat that process, the art generation after generation reduces and condenses and becomes, you know, becomes, uh, diminishes into nothing. What we want is the opposite direction. We want, we want the art to grow, which is why once I teach my students everything I know, whether I look good doing it or not, I then encourage them to go elsewhere and learn more. And if I'm really lucky, they learn more and they bring it back to me. So now my students become my instructors, which is the, the proudest thing I can have as a, as a teacher or a coach or even a leader is to have, have people in your team, people who have worked with you or for you, that you've helped with their career come back to be your boss or, or go on to do better things than you. 
I've never encountered a, a school teacher who's been jealous of a student's success in later life. They've always been proud to have been part of that journey. And yet often in other areas, you see people who are actually quite keen to hold people back. And, and I think, you know, more of a more of an insecurity on their part than than anything else. So martial arts really teaches you that selfless leadership. It teaches you to just give everything. And and I think what it also demonstrates is you can teach people to be better than you. And, and a great example and um, one I always cite is is the coach of Mike Tyson, the you know, the professional heavyweight boxer from my generation. As a, as a child, I used to watch all of his fights. His coach, Customato, who sadly passed away many years ago, was never the accomplished boxer that Mike Tyson became, but yet he got him to be that good. He was able to pass on his knowledge of the art and the knowledge and the science of the art and get Mike Tyson to be one of the best mar the best martial artists, if you like, the best boxers, heavyweight boxers the world's ever seen. And yet Cus was never that good as a boxer himself. And it, and it really shows that just because you can't demonstrate a technique and wow the crowd doesn't mean you don't have something to teach and offer. And, and that's why you shouldn't be shy from doing that. You, as an instructor, you should be keen to show everything that you know, good or bad, whether you've got it, you know, got it down or not. So I think that's, you know, that's a quite a nice analogy. And, and as I say, you know, Mike Tyson was, uh, was a great example of just how good you can become at one particular sport when you've got great coaches, great instructors. And as I say, that's, that's really what a leader should be. Um, you know, I've lost count of the numbers of students I've encouraged to go elsewhere. And, uh, and as I say, the, the key is they come back then and my art grows as a result of those students running out and, and uh, finding it for me. The next thing, which was part of that original quote, is don't lead where you won't go. And, um, you know, and I think it's also key that as an instructor, I shouldn't get my students to do stuff that I'm not prepared to do or haven't done in the past. And the same with a leader, the same, you know, and I, I'm conscious that I'm applying a lot of these analogies to one of the parallel, which is being a leader or a manager. But um, but I think that's really important. Don't ask people to do stuff that you wouldn't be prepared to do yourself. It's not about just passing down the, the, the jobs you don't like. You know, it's about you know being smart about how you lead and how you teach. There's another, there's another really core element that, um, particularly with the instructors I've had, it's something they've been very, very strong at making sure all their students follow this, which is to pay it forwards. So we have a real strong ethos in martial arts about giving credit where you, where you have learnt your techniques or your skills or your you know picked up your knowledge. So whenever I teach a technique to a student. I'll always make sure that I let them know who taught it to me. What's the what's the um, lineage of this technique? What's the history of it? Where does it come from? It helps with learning because it gives deeper understanding, but more importantly, it gives credit where it's due. And I think that's that's really important. That's selfless leadership. And again, the best managers I've ever worked for have been selfless. They've given credit where it's due. And uh, and so, again, we see more parallels from martial arts to other, other areas of our lives. There's a I'm, and I will and I don't, and I don't apologize for it, but I'm a big fan of quotes. So I'll throw another one at you. So one of my favorite quotes around leadership is take more than your fair share of the blame and less than your fair share of the credit. And I think that should just be a mantra for any leader. And, and from martial arts, we just do that by habit. It's just ingrained from the very beginning if you've got good instructors. And so I think that's, that's a few of the philosophies. Um, I think 
one of the other things to look at is when we look at the effort that it takes. And I mentioned about the time and effort it takes to become a black belt. And, and it's a huge amount of commitment. It's a huge amount of patience. It means you're probably going to go through, certainly for the arts that I studied, were painful, were scary, hurt, you know, physically hurt, as well as psychologically and mentally were, were challenging. And the progress is so small that you don't get to see it on a day-to-day basis. So there's a few things you must have. One is a very good reason why to do it. The next is a very clear vision of the goal. So what are you trying to achieve with this art? What do you want to get out of it? Such that you can put a plan together. So if I'm studying karate, but I, I know that my my boxing skills aren't very good, well, I need a plan in place. So my plan would be find some boxing instruction, find when I can go and train that and bring that back into my art. So have a really good goal and a good plan. And then invest in yourself. I'm, I'm always at pains to get my students within their financial ability to buy the best equipment, to buy themselves the best facilities. That's all about investing in yourself. But the best equipment means you you train better, you train safer, you train more productively. And, and so I think that's really important, actually investing in yourself if you're really serious about this journey. And then I think finally you need to have good trust in your instructors and your fellow students that they are putting you on the right path. Certainly when you start in martial arts, because it's this blank canvas, it's a complete unknown. And so you have to trust that what the instructor's getting you to do and the journey they're putting you on and maybe why the instructor's getting you to do certain challenging and scary things is, is part of a bigger plan. And you know, if you don't have the plan, trust your instructors. And, and obviously that can be a bit hit and miss depending who your instructor is and how you found them. But at some point you've got to, you've got to trust the people around you that they've got your best intentions and that they want you to exceed, uh, you know, excel and succeed. And I think that's, um, that's, you know, again, take all of those bullet points and apply them to anything else that you want to do. And I think it will apply. Um, when I talk about having that trust, so some, uh, it, there's probably still some footage out there somewhere on YouTube, but um, but one of the things we used to do in our martial arts class, certainly in the early days, was a thing we called Animal Days, and the name was it, the name was given to it by um, by actually a journalist who discovered that we were doing this thing and gave it this name of Animal Day because it looked quite animalistic, and essentially what we were doing is we realised that most martial arts, if not all only ever teach you to defend against techniques from within that art. So if you look at a boxer, boxing is simply with the hands punching above the waist. So a boxer only learns to defend against punches above the waist. You've, they, they, they don't have to care about what it's like to be kicked in the legs or what it's like to be thrown over someone's shoulder because that's not something they're going to face when they go to compete. So that leaves gaps in, in a well-rounded martial artist. So what we decided to do was to welcome anyone to our classes to come and spar or fight. It didn't matter what art they were from, what level they were at, if they wanted to come along, they could come and train with us and spar with us. And it became almost no rules, no holds barred kind of thing. It was safe, you know, we had, it was in a controlled environment, but what it meant was we were able to pressure test what we were learning, which we were definitely learning martial arts for self-defense and for no other reason. So I didn't compete very much. My, most of my martial art was studied for personal security and self-protection. So we wanted to check, well, if, what are we learning 
does it actually do that? Is it functional? And one of the ways was to test it and put it under pressure in much the same way as we pressure test anything that we want to develop. And so animal days became a thing. It was actually the best way to describe it is think of UFC before the UFC existed. It was way before then. That's how old I am. It was way before then. What I realized was, and it was scary, it was frightening, um, the the build-up to going training on a Sunday morning would be with me all week. That fear, that anticipation, that anxiety of what's who's going to be there on Sunday, am I going to get beaten up, am I going to win, you know, all, all of those, um, you know, an- anticipations were there. What it actually did, as well as testing the physical, which was, in my opinion, a byproduct, it tested and built up the mental muscle. It allowed us to develop this um, 20 stone powerhouse bodybuilder fighter internally. And I think that was really important because that was the, the real lesson that I took from those animal days, that, that strength of will, that self-discipline, self-control, that understanding of fear and, and was something then that I could definitely apply to other things. And, and it, was, it was interesting times for sure. But, um, but it really helped me develop um, a, a well-rounded martial arts background. And again, in terms of philosophy, back to your original question, it was a really, it was a really important part of taking something from martial arts that can benefit other areas of your life, that philosophy of you know, growing the mental muscle, not just the physical one. And you know, if I look at my role now in Formula One, when I look at my career, having gone through um, the automotive world, the aerospace world, I've been in software and consulting, I've worked in telecoms, and I've worked in startups. Just like going and studying other arts and picking up different techniques and different strategies and philosophies. So those other industries have taught me different strategies and philosophies. And that's helped me become more of a well-rounded individual within my particular role and industry right now. So there's almost a degree that you need to go out there and explore these other things and pick up that other information to be more well-rounded, to be broader, and um, and to actually benefit what, what you do right now. But the trick is understanding those processes. Don't just go through those experiences blindly. Be, go through it with your eyes wide open that this is what you're looking to learn from them. And I think that's, that's really important. Um, one, one of the things I always say, as an analogy, and this isn't to diss any actors out there, but if you've ever seen a, an A-list actor deliver a powerful performance on screen and then see them crumble when it comes to their awards acceptance speech, because they don't do that very often and that's quite scary and nervous and they're just not great at it. It's a bit probably a bit of a harsh analogy, but what it says to me in some cases that that individual who's great at facing challenge and fear and uncomfortable situations in one part of their life, that they've learned a process of how to you know, succeed and excel in that area. They haven't translated that knowledge into another part, which is actually quite similar, standing on stage in front of cameras versus standing you know, at this you know, movie set. So you, 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 you can quickly look around and see how some people are great at one thing and, and not so good at another. And it's just that they haven't been able to cross train they haven't been able to transfer those skills and those processes which again is all in the philosophy of martial arts that's what we're doing it for um i'd probably you know i'd probably add another statement i'm conscious that you're okay with me talking this much i just wanted to double check because you started me on martial arts and this is what happens so one of my one of my instructors bearing in mind i left school at 16 because mostly because i was being bullied 
and martial arts was for me initially for self-defense. So one of my instructors said to me, if you're going to now spend, I don't know, 10 hours a week on the mat for the rest of your life studying martial arts, just so that you can become good at self-defense and protect yourself from maybe a physical confrontation that may never actually happen. And if it does, probably if you're decent and good, will only have a few seconds. That's an awful lot of time of your life to invest in something that never happens. So there's got to be something more to gain from it. And that was his, that was his way of saying, look below the surface. Don't just look at what you're learning physically and the techniques you're developing. You've got to get more out of it than that. And the moment you hear that kind of statement makes you then realize, okay, so what else can I get from, from this process? The process in martial arts includes, and I could cite many things, but what we've talked about, that commitment, that dedication, attention to detail, patience, um, trust and faith in what you're doing and your instructors, getting the best instruction, the best guidance, the best support, the best training, practicing well with good instruction. All of those things and many, many more are the things that you learn and are the things that the philosophy of martial arts are teaching you. The, the, the ability to take down your would-be assailant physically is a very small byproduct. It's like, it's like fitting an airbag into your car and then spending the rest of your driving days avoiding crashes, which is what we do. So you've invested in that airbag. It's there just in case that unfortunate incident happens, but, but what else do you get from doing that? You get peace of mind, you get security, you get confidence that you're gonna be in safe hands should the car crash. You know, all those other things are byproducts um, of why you've really done that. So it's, yeah, if martial arts is only for self-defense, that's an insurance policy that you're gonna spend a lot of time and a lot of effort studying that for something that may never happen. So while you're there, get something else from it. And I think that's really important. Um, for me, um, my first instructor was a, a guy called Jeff Thompson. Um, I'm proud to say he's family now. He's my brother-in-law. He married my sister many, many years ago. It was Jeff who encouraged me to look outside of the arts and find new instructors and broaden my skill set. From the martial arts, two years into the martial arts, at the age of 14, I met my brother from another mother, Mick Tully. He's He's been my martial arts companion throughout all of these years, and I would um, argue is also a big influence and an instructor as much as he is a training buddy. It was Mick who introduced me to another world-class martial artist, uh, a guy called Terry Barnett. Um, and I wanted to name check a few instructors and I apologize for everyone else that I had the pleasure of training with that I can't name check them all. But Terry Barnett was, um, he once said that Jeff, what, in terms of my martial arts ability, Jeff created the painting and Terry just put the frame around it. And I think that's the mark of the man that is Terry Barnett to be so humble because he actually gave me a lot more than just framing what I already had. But um, but yeah, he's been a huge influence to me as is uh, another instructor in the Jeet Kune Do world, which is Rick Fay, who's based in Minneapolis. So sadly, I don't get to train with him as much as I'd like. But again, you know, that. The martial arts has given me so many things, but if nothing else, it's given me these friendships from people who can, who are now my mentors, my coaches, my guides, and have just taught me so much more than just how to hit hard. And, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for that. So I probably did digress from the original question. So apologies. But yeah, that's, 
that's just a taster of martial arts philosophy and what it can bring. It's totally fine. Um, you actually just brought up a topic that I wanted to to touch on anyway, which is coaches and and companions. And in the business world, many people call those mentors. So I wonder, apart from these people that you just mentioned, were there further mentors and teachers that were significant to you in the past? And what did they teach you? And then uh, secondly, what also is very interesting, in my opinion, is uh, a topic that many young people struggle with maybe or also wonder about a lot is how to find a mentor. How is it possible to find a suitable mentor? Do you have any advice on this? Yeah, so taking the first one, and you know, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity because this is a good chance for me to thank a few people without li listing off a whole you know, name, real or something. Um, obviously, my parents are the biggest influence. Um, and so if we almost assume that that's a given, you know, they've, they've, they gave me my start. They've given me loads and loads of attributes that have helped me along the way. Most probably one of the main ones from my father is, and my mother, but mostly my father is just work hard. You know, it's as my brother Mick says, it's crazy. The, the harder he works, the luckier he gets. And, um, you know, I definitely picked up that adage from my parents who, you know, who have a life of working incredibly hard. So I thank them for that start. I met Jeff Thompson at the age of 12, my first instructor, purely by chance. He just happened to be the nearest martial arts class to my home. And at 12 years of age, it had to be somewhere I could walk to. And who'd have thought that I would end up in that club learning from arguably one of the most acclaimed um, certainly self-defense or reality self-defense martial arts instructors in the world. Um, and so I've been really fortunate to have just accidentally stumbled on that class and ended up with something that was incredibly life-changing and, and is with me ever since. I, I think when I, um, if I flip to my um, more career, my, 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 my kind of engineering career, not so much a mentor, but an influence uh, was a, actually looking back was quite a short space of time, but it was during my time as an apprentice, uh, 17 years of age in a company called Dunlop Aerospace in the Midlands in Coventry in the UK, we developed aircraft brakes and braking systems. And as a 17 year old apprentice, after your first year, you have to do placements around the factory. You have to learn all the different jobs, which is a great experience. But basically, as an apprentice, you're there to be bullied. You're there to be picked on. It's a tough time. You know, you're in quite a, you know, this is, this is back in the day where, um, you know, there was there was far less health and safety. It was, you know, one of the guys that I, in his office, they could just sit and smoke in their office. So it was, you know, this, this shows how old I am. This is quite a long time ago. But at 17 years of age, I met a guy called John Jakes. And since I left a lot, a few years later, I've sadly and you know, never never reached out to him and contacted him since but he um he was a quality inspector and uh he he had this amazing trick talking of smoking in the office of being able to smoke an entire cigarette without flicking the ash off once so i was as a 17 year old who didn't smoke i was in awe of this talent um but he was old school and what he did was took me under his wing for a, for a, like a two-month placement And he showed me all of the tricks of the trade, all of the system, uh, the ways to dodge the system and play the system. Totally the stuff he should not have been teaching a young engineer, but I wasn't complaining at the time. And he, uh, 
he really looked after me. He made it such a fun placement. He taught me loads of stuff. He, you know, even got the company to give me overtime pay, which was unheard of for apprentices. So, you know, he was, he was a really big influence for a short period of time. But what stuck with me was when I left that placement on the last day of working for him, he said, have you had a great time? And I was like, yeah. And he said, just remember how I've looked after you is how you need to look after your apprentices. And I've not had apprentices work for me. I've had teams and I've had people that at different stages of their career and I've mentored and I mentor now. And but it's something that stuck with me, that that lesson of, you know, if you can do good or bad, do good. You know, try and try and be the good guy to give something back, help someone in the start of their career, give them, you know, give them something which, again, just parallels with the martial arts. When I get a brand new student into the class, I will always, if I can't teach them directly myself, I will put them with the best students I've got. Because firstly, I don't want them to start and pick up bad habits. I want them to pick up good habits. But also because I think, you know, that's the way to learn, is learn from the best. And so I want to encourage that and promote that as a, as a philosophy. And so, you know, having having a, a guy like that who made that placement really cool was just a, a great little lesson. And surprisingly, for a couple of months out of my long, long life, it stuck with me and something I always try to do now. I had another parallel life at the same time, though. So when I was 18, I started to work nightclub doors as a bouncer, as a nightclub doorman. And I did that for at least 10 years it helped fund my degree studies it helped fund my my further education and and again it was jeff my original instructor who um selflessly took me with him because he was a you know he was already a well-established doorman and actually was coming close to retiring off that that scene he introduced me to some amazing people some incredible individuals talented fearless individuals hugely experienced in that world and and again, I've been really fortunate to work with and under and alongside some of the best in the business, in my opinion. But there's one that I have to mention, which is Clive, who was my first. Um, he, he was the, the manager of the first pub that I worked at. He took a chance on this very naive young 18 year old who had no track record of being a doorman, no history and gave me a shot, gave me a chance and then stood with me for night after night for the next three years and beyond as my fellow doorman. And I would say almost overnight, he took me from being this very young, naive 18 year old to a very streetwise, very switched on individual. And and I have to thank him for that because yeah, without him giving me a shot and giving me a chance, then I wouldn't have I wouldn't have progressed in that world and learnt as much as I did or made the friends that I did and the contacts that I did. And and again, you know I love my quotes by now. So Clive Clive is the one guy that really taught me it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. And he was incredibly fearless, you know, an incredible talent and gave me so much confidence when he was by my side. But again, all parallels back to the martial arts and to the animal day training. It was about building that mental muscle, that strength of character, that strength of will. That's what gets you through when times get hard. And so, yeah, Clive, I have to give him a name check because he was such a big part of my door career. Um, I think more recently, my role, um, particularly within the F1 roles that I've had, has been an amazing opportunity that I've grabbed with both hands that basically has allowed me to be around businessmen and women, certainly of a caliber that are above me, um, people of seniority that's way higher than me. In fact, 
people who I don't really have a right to be in the room with. But yet the role and the position I have and the sport that I'm in opens those doors. And so I've been really fortunate to be in the room with, you know, these these incredibly experienced businessmen and women and just witness them at work, learn from them, ask them questions, try to try to pick their brains and and and, and again, understand their journey more than what they're doing now. How did they get to be that good? What did they learn along the way? What lessons and nuggets can I, you know, what what bits of gold can I get from them? And and again, far too many to name check, and I and I don't want to miss people out. So, but I, what I would say is that there are certainly, you know, my time at AT and T is a great example that I had some very senior contacts that I made through my time in Formula One who took a chance on me and gave me opportunities that I'm incredibly grateful for. Um, but one in particular is of interest. There was a few guys, um, you know, uh, John Slomechka and Greg Weibolt and Frank Jules were, were three key guys at AT&T that, that helped me. And again, apologies, there were many, many others. But one thing I remember chatting to Frank Jules about, who's president of global sales at AT&T, super, super senior, incredibly successful and a really great guy. He plays a lot of golf. And so I asked the obvious question, do you do a lot of business on the golf course? And what surprised me was he said, no, I do all my learning on the golf course. And I said, well, how do you, what do you mean? He said, well, I, I invite customers. I, I'm sorry if Frank is listening to this, I'm giving away secrets, so apologies. But he said, I invite customers and then I do far less talking and a lot more listening. And I learn about their problems, their challenges. And, and, and then I can go away and figure out, well, what can I do to help them? So, you know, he uses that time to, to learn. So he's almost using his customers as mentors and, you know, advisors. And I just think that that's smart, really smart. And I, again, probably the reason I've remembered that because I think it's a really powerful lesson. So I've been very fortunate. I've had some mentors that have been very generous with their time, some that I work with now, but not necessarily officially mentors. You know, they're just people who's whose company I get to be with and for some reason, some random reason they like me being around. So I'm not going to say no and, and I'll, I'll learn as much as I can. I just try to be a sponge and, and soak as much up from them as I can. Um, so how do you find a mentor? So um, I would say the first thing is, is ask. So I've been fortunate to have some of these senior experienced business people and I've just asked them, you know, can I would you mind if we could set up a, a monthly call is, you know, I just want to pick your brains or maybe is it okay if I reach out when I've got a challenge, would you mind? So what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. They, they say, no, that's not what I do. Fine. Nothing lost. So sometimes you've just got to be brave enough to ask because the, the, the worst that can happen isn't, isn't that bad. Um, I think you can certainly look out. You can certainly ask people around you if they have mentors or any recommendations. You can use LinkedIn, my best friend now, and network and find people that way. Um, I have a, a formal coach that I work with. Um, I pay for that. So again, going back to martial arts, investing in yourself, whether it's financially or with time. Um, so again, someone who's helping me structure things more now, but something that I felt that was, you know, was very worthwhile investment and is proving to be really, really valuable to me. Um, but what I would say in all of this, even with coaches that you pay for, you've got to be prepared to give something yourself. You, you, you can't meet these conversations less than halfway. You've got to be prepared to have something to offer. So give first and then receive second. And I think that's really important. And I always use the analogy that people quote when they, 
when they're talking to people who are a bit down or a bit low and they say just go and hang out with some happy people because if you hang out with happy people the happiness rubs off and it does and it's true it's you know it's kind of a fact but what you've got to ask yourself is why would those happy people want you to be around them if you're not happy as well you know what because all you're doing then is going there trying to get something from them so you've got to be prepared to show up and give something and offer something first before you'll be welcomed into that group and then you can start to benefit so i think you've yeah you've you've got to be uh, i think you need to get go into it with that approach but then look around you there are mentors everywhere and they don't have to be from your own industry or from the area that you want to develop in it can you know it, it's everywhere so i think just have your eyes wide open and then be prepared to ask it's probably the quickest answer so i would love to jump back to the topic of martial arts for now because now i have the opportunity to to pick your brains on that and um in your role as a martial arts instructor you also have developed and published a self-defense concept which is called fence concepts and i would like to to talk about uh, a bit about this and first ask you could you just explain what the concept is about and then also what its approach to self-defense is Yeah, so I'll caveat this whole thing with the book was self-published. So I can't I can't claim fame to be in this, you know, published author with, you know, um, top of the reading list or anything like that. It's uh, it's a self-published book. But and, and again, almost stolen from my original instructor, Jeff, who had this whole concept of fence uh, and fence is quite simply from a self-defense perspective, it's all about building a fence around your personal space, much like you would put a perimeter wall around your property. And the idea is, in a very simplistic terms, you use that spatial awareness to assess threat. And from a physical confrontation perspective, it's all about understanding if someone is invading your space, if they're being aggressive, if they're being threatening, if you are in imminent danger and how you control and manage that space. So it can initially at a very surface level looks like it's a self-defense manual that is all about dealing with confrontation when it's right there in front of you, when you know, when the attacker is, is there asking for your money or whatever. Um, and that's that's what it is on the surface that's what it is what i realized though again partly through the process of writing the book was that there was an awful lot more within it and a, and a, and a greater greater lessons that we can take from it and so to give you a, a bit of an idea um sun tzu the um the chinese military strategist this is, this is why i love all my quotes because there are so many sun tzu quotes one of them is um, know your enemy know yourself so in order that I can understand how to deal with a confrontational situation, I first have to understand myself, understand my own abilities, understand how I can, what I, what my strengths and weaknesses are. Then I have to understand how attackers operate. So I have to understand the enemy. I have to study them and I have to figure out what is it they're looking for in a victim. Because if I know what they're looking for, I can do my best not to portray those signs and attributes and remove myself from the selection pool of being a victim in the first place. Self-defense is all about avoidance. It's about being aware of your environment and avoiding the confrontation, not learning how to hit hard and not attackers out, because if it gets physical, it's already too late. You've made a lot of mistakes. So, so the fence was, is more about understanding your environment, helping you uh, improve your awareness and understanding of your environment, 
looking for threats, but also looking for positives. So if all I do is look for the attacker, then I will see lots of would-be attackers when I walk around the town shopping. What I also have to do, though, is look for the positives. Where are the safe places I could run to? Where are the places I could run to where there may be people who can help me? And what you realize when you start to get a more of a balanced approach and a balanced attitude is you start to see a lot more positives than negatives. And so your whole mindset changes that actually the world isn't that bad a place. It isn't full of attackers. There's far more good people than bad. And, you know, and so it's it's it starts to open your eyes a little bit and give you a better view of the world. But managing your environment is no different from a from the fence concepts and from a physical confrontation scenario than, than understanding your environment in the commercial world understanding what are the threats that are in, that could impact your business what are the threats and and that could impact your competitors businesses but also don't just look for the threats look for the good opportunities where could we grow our business what are the opportunities we can embrace and latch on to you can only do that if you have a really good awareness of what's going on around you so again lots of parallels from fence concepts into other scenarios if you like and and so and I, I think that's really that's really where the, the whole book broadens from being a, a self-defense manual to something that may have some underlying lessons that that we can apply to other things. I think also, you know, understanding what attackers want is, you know, is also part of that building rapport with other people. If I want to make a friendship with someone. I need to give them something first before, you know, give before you receive in a relationship. And so well, what I need to now know, if I'm going to give them something, I need to make sure it's something they want. So in a self-defense situation, I need to understand if an attacker wants to attack me, what is it they're after? Because actually it might be easier to give them that than to fight them and risk personal injury. So that understanding of the situation, understanding what people want, whether it's good or bad around you, just gives you, again, a, just a different perspective, a different outlook, and it allows you to make better decisions. Having more spatial awareness and awareness of the environment allows you more choice. If I see an attacker 100 meters away, I have a lot more options than I do if I don't spot that attacker until they're stood right in front of me. And often that happens when people bury their head in the sand and they spot the attacker a long way away, but they choose to ignore that first sign and they won't and they basically re, re diminish their options the more and more the time the situation evolves. Just like the working the nightclub security. If I saw someone in the queue coming into the nightclub who I thought um, was under the influence of alcohol or I thought might be trouble, the easiest thing is to just bury my head in the sand and let them go into the club and then spend the rest of the night hoping they don't cause trouble. Invariably they do. And then it's harder to remove them and eject them from the club than it would have been to have stopped them from entering in the first place. But of course, stopping them in the first place is an uncomfortable conversation. And so we immediately or instinctively want to avoid that because that's not, that's not nice. It's easier to spend a whole evening hoping something doesn't happen than it is to have that, you know, step forwards and make that uncomfortable decision, that uncomfortable conversation. But yet that is the right thing to do. That's in the long run, that is the better thing to do. So the same in business, don't wait for a situation to unfold and unfold until you've got no choices, but to have a big panic reaction. Deal with something early, deal with, deal with something head on and make decisions early because you've probably got more options at that point. So 
I'm conscious that I'm probably waffling a little bit, but the, the book has some great analogies. It's a great manual, in my opinion, <laughs> my humble opinion. Uh, it's only because I've got hundreds of them on a shelf in my office here that I just can't sell. Um, but it's a great manual for self-defense, but it's also, it does have some analogies if you look at it from a different perspective and, and you try and take something else from it. But thank you for name-checking the book. I appreciate the plug. <laughs> of course, you're welcome. So, You just mentioned that the identification of threats is a core element of the fence concept. Now, this gives me the opportunity to bring up the topic of fear. Being fearful or being nervous of especially new situations is something that is very present in young people. And I can speak here for myself and also for my peer group, obviously. So if we, for example, think of a career starter, who has his first meeting with a CEO, this person will most likely be shivering and be very nervous. Now, I wonder, as this is a topic that you have dealt with extensively, do you have any advice on how young people can manage their fear? And maybe you have even advice on how to use the emotion of fear for one's advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and it, it is something that's had a... Uh, kind of a, a theme through everything I've done in, in my career and through my life from, you know, martial arts training through to working nightclub doors and various career decisions. Um, I think firstly, like anything else that you want to understand or you want to um, overcome or deal with, there are a few key key steps of the process that, that help. So the first thing, you know, for me is understand what is fear, understand what is it and what causes it, what triggers it. What are the impacts of it? So what are, you know, what, what, how will it impact you physiologically and emotionally? And once you start to break it down, like anything else, then it's easier to figure out steps to deal with it. So then we can look at, well, how can we control fear? And then once we can get it under control, how can we actually use it to our advantage, as, you, as you've just mentioned? So with your permission I'll, i'll try and zip through each of those and give you some you know, give you some of my thoughts um so the first thing with fear is um we attach to it and i think the important point to note from my and this is only my amateur view of what is fear is it's not a thing it's an emotion it's it's an emotion we attach to a scenario or a circumstance or a thought and it's the emotion that we we create that causes a lot of the problems. So what I mean by that is take the, the example of meeting the CEO. Someone who's going to meet the CEO for the first time, like me, will be fearful. We'll have, we'll have those feelings of fear, but it hasn't happened yet. The, the meeting hasn't happened. And as a result of the meeting not happening, there will be a few things unknowns that could go good or bad. I just don't know. But what the brain is great at, annoyingly, is when there are gaps and there are unknowns, it is brilliant at filling those gaps in with negative thought. And if you allow it to do that, it's those negative thoughts attached to something that hasn't happened yet that can trigger fear. And so if it hasn't happened yet and your brain has been able to attach a negative outcome or a negative thought, well, why don't we look at interrupting that and assigning a positive one? Sounds really easy. It's not quite that easy, but you get the idea behind it. So for me, the first thing is don't treat it like a thing. It's um, it's an emotion. 
And like any emotion, we, with practice, can control them or certainly get some control of them and start to you know, reframe it all. If you think that we're only actually born with two fears, one is the fear of loud noises and one is the fear of falling. I, that may have changed, but in the studies I've read, a lot of scientists say as a, as a newborn baby, they're the two fears that we're born with. They are inbuilt. Everything else is learned. It's learned behavior. It's learned fear. And depending where in the world you're born and what your environment's like, there will be different influences that impact that. Not all fear is bad. Some fear is great. If I, if I live in the jungle and I have a fear of, of poisonous snakes, that's not a bad fear to have. That's going to keep me on edge. It's going to keep me on my toes and hopefully help me run away from a snake when I see it. So, you know, it's not all bad. It's not all negative. I think where it becomes really bad is if a fear becomes a phobia. And then that, that can become really debilitating and very negative. So, so keeping that in mind, if there are only two fears that we're born with, let's assume that that's correct. Um, then everything else is learned and we have the ability to decide how we relearn, how we reprogram, how we reframe our feelings and emotions based on different stimulus. So the next thing then is to try and understand fear and how it works, what actually is happening, certainly internally, physiologically, that's creating this emotion. And we have to then look at what we call our sympathetic nervous system, which is inbuilt in every human being with the exception of one or two, if you, there's a documentary I saw about an individual who had no fear. Physiologically, he, he had no fear. And it's actually incredibly dangerous because then wouldn't be frightened of environments that would actually be harmful to human life. It just didn't give him any fear, any anxiety at all. But that's few and far between. So the sympathetic nervous system is there to trigger an adrenal response under certain situations, most of which are learned like an attacker coming at me who wants to beat me up or the, the feeling, feeling of dread of a meeting with the CEO tomorrow morning. So the sympathetic nervous system, what it does is it recognizes this situation and releases adrenaline, the hormone adrenaline in our body. And it's there back from when we were cavemen and women where we were hunting prey for food, but we also could be the prey of larger, scarier, more aggressive animals. And so we needed a mechanism to help us find a sudden surge of energy, extra strength and power for short periods of time, like the afterburner on an aircraft gives it more speed, but consumes more fuel. We needed something that could trigger that in, in cases of extreme danger. And the idea is that that would either allow us to fight and fight for our lives with superhuman strength or run away and, and, and flee. So the fight or flight mechanism. What we have now, though, is more of we, we have a third. So you have fight or flight, but you can also have freeze. And if you've ever seen someone um, who's doing their very first bungee jump or their very first parachute jump, the brain's saying you need to, to jump. It's fine. The rational brain saying this is crazy. And so what happens instead of fighting, which would be to step forwards, or running away, they freeze. And it's like their feet are glued to the floor. And that's all down to the body's reaction to this adrenal response or adrenaline dump, if you like. The reason you have adrenaline is because it triggers a few things. The main one is that it triggers increased heart rate. So it will accelerate your heart rate in half a second from resting to 180 to 200 beats a minute. 
And it does that so that you can get blood fired around the body, primarily to the major muscles. And the reason it does that is so that you've got those major muscle groups um, so that you can run away or you can fight and throw punches and save your life. The, the problem we have is that now we, we, we don't, if you're lucky, we don't have um, these sudden um, fight or flight situations unless we're very unfortunate to be attacked or to have a car crash or something that's very immediate that triggers that immediate response. Our lives now and the environment we're in, particularly you know for for where we are in the world, they're far more um, they're far more prolonged. It's that do you know that that anxiety, that dread, that anticipation of a meeting in a week's time or the keynote in a month's time that you you slowly build up an anxiety of that is a slow adrenal release, and that's that's almost more damaging because if I have a big adrenal dump to run away from an attacker. I burn that energy, I use that adrenaline, I get it out of my system. But when something is prolonged, that adrenaline sits and it can actually become quite toxic to the body. So it's it's understanding you know, that that's what's happened. The adrenaline has been de- deployed in the body in order for this fight or flight moment in time. And that often is a shock to an individual. It's something they don't experience very often and the shock of it, the newness of it, becomes you know an emotion or turns into an emotion that they attach fear to so one of the things to um, to understand is to is to break it down into what does this adrenaline do and why do i experience these things that i for some reason attach fear or softer versions of fear adrenaline uh, sorry anxiety nervousness um, trepidation all those kind of things all, all along the scale the fear spectrum if you like And the best way to break it down is to look at some of the different things we experience. So I'll give you some examples. Um, If you ever get butterflies in your stomach, that is because adrenaline has decided that it will will stop digesting food. Your body doesn't need to digest food when you're running away from an attacker. So it shuts down your your bowel and your digestive system. And as a result, and because there's, there's the heart rate's increased, you get butterflies in your stomach. You perspire. You perspire, which if you see someone on stage, if they're nervous, they sweat. People in front of the boss for the first time, they sweat, they perspire. That's the body's reaction to preparing to cool down after you've run away or had the fight. So the body, the body's doing all of this stuff that is built in us from the time, since time began that actually just really doesn't help us right now. I don't need to be sweating when I'm on stage. That's really uncool. And But yet the body thinks that's what I need to do because I'm having this adrenal response. I get tunnel vision. Everyone, um, what happens because of the way um, the, the heart rate is accelerated and is pushing blood to the major muscle groups, fine dexterity and the ability to control um, the small muscle groups and complex muscle groups is, is diminished one of which are the muscles in your eyes that help you with focus, but also your pupils dilate because if you had to run away from a from an angry saber-toothed tiger, what you want to do is get as much light in as possible so that you can understand the environment and the scene as much as possible. But the downside is you become very target focused. So all of your peripheral vision goes, so you start to get tunnel vision, which can be quite scary and give you fear if it's not something you're used to. You get dry mouth, you get a pale face, people go pale and ashen when they're nervous because again, all the blood's being directed to the major muscles to get you out of trouble. It doesn't need to be on the extremities. And and you know, and lots of other things, even even parts of the brain will shut down. 
your ability to rationally deduce and your ability to have rational thinking diminishes when you're at high stress. It's why people do things that are totally out of character when they're scared because their rational brain is switched off. And, and it's also why uh, memory function switches off. So when you ask someone who has been attacked, they'll usually tell you, I don't remember it all happened, it was a blur. How long did it take? Oh, at least half an hour. It was probably 10 seconds. And your, your whole concept of time, your whole concept of uh, your memory, your rational thinking all diminishes, which is fine for when it was needed back in the day. But right now, I don't want my rational thought to switch off when I'm meeting the CEO. <laughs> so, so understanding that these are all byproducts of the chemical reaction that's been triggered in your body as a result of the scenario and partly as a result of the way you've thought about that scenario is what triggers the fear. And, and once you can understand them, you can, start to, you can start to deal with them and rationalize them. And I think that's really, really important. One of the things that helps stop this process or nip it in the bud, get in, you know, interrupted at the start is by reframing the situation, which is kind of what I talked about at the beginning. So if I'm meeting the CEO, or let's say I'm going to do a keynote and I do a keynote and now I've got a keynote in a month's time and I'm really nervous. So one of the things I'm nervous about is because I think I'm just going to bomb. I'm, you know, the crowd are going to boo me off stage halfway through. I'm going to forget my lines and, you know, they, they won't laugh at my jokes which is, uh, happens quite often. Um, so I'm going to think about that and that's going to spiral me down and eventually I'm going to be frightened to do this keynote. And, and I know lots of people, me included, will find excuses to not, to, to, you know, to get out of it and, oh, I'm busy that day just because I know that I'm going to be scared for the next month and I just don't want that. So what I need to do is, is reframe the whole thing because the keynote hasn't happened. Um, one of the things I learned, one of the, one of the, uh, the little tools that came with my learning and studying of NLP, neuro linguistic programming, is to reframe, reframe things that haven't happened. And we used to have a phrase called as if. So if I have this keynote in a month's time, I will visualize as if it was a success. What does the success of a keynote look like? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? The crowd cheering me feeling elated at the end of it everyone's happy loads of people coming up to congratulate me at the end picture that because that's just as likely to happen as me bombing you know neither neither are real yet so why don't i focus on the positive and it is all that positive mindset but what it actually does from a fear perspective is it now changes the emotion i attached to the keynote because now i imagine myself doing great i'm excited for the keynote i'm looking forward to it I'm, I'm keen to get going on it rather than dreading it and really not wanting it to happen. And just by attaching an, you know, that as if, as if it's successful approach to it means that then I can stop the fear from getting triggered in the first place, which is ideal. Now, if fear does happen, then by understanding all the things that it's going to trigger and the way my body is going to react and the, and the feelings I'm going to experience, that then means I can start to um, deal with those more and understand them. And understanding, again, gets rid of these doubts. It gets rid of these gaps. I'm, my, I've got butterflies in my stomach, so I, uh, stomach. I don't know what that is. Therefore, I'm going to get scared. Well, if I understand what's going on, I go, it's okay. It's just body doing its thing. It's fine. And you can start to almost, again, just, just try and deal with it in small pieces. Um, one of the things I'd say to combat fear, though, is... To, to train. So if you understand your own abilities, 
then the negatives of, let's say, meeting the CEO, if I know what the conversation is going to be about, and if I've done my research, my homework, and I've got all of my answers ready, I've imagined the event, I know what the CEO is going to ask, I've given it every every likelihood of where the conversation will go, and I've got my answers prepared, and I've done my research, I'm going to feel more confident going into that meeting. And that confidence of knowing my ability, knowing my subject, having rehearsed, takes away some of the doubt, which helps reduce some of the fear and anxiety. So training, understanding where you're good, understanding where your gaps are, and going and fixing those are all ways of helping reduce the severity or the impact of the emotion of fear and its and its brothers and sisters on a diff- on different scales. I think the probably the last thing I would say is um, face your fears. So the best way to overcome fear, don't ever expect it to disappear. Don't ever expect not to be able to um, not not to experience it. But the trick is being able to handle it. If I go back to Customato, Mike Tyson's trainer, he said, and I paraphrase, but he said, everyone feels fear. The one who's more likely to succeed is the one who handles it best, who copes with it and deals with it best. And the best way to cope with fear is to expose yourself to it often. And it doesn't have to be at the severest level. There is a scale of what is fear, you know, anxiety, trepidation. There are lots of scales to that. So just dip your toe in, practice. If I'm frightened of a keynote that is 4,000 people, then, well, I can I can spend the next two years building up to that level by doing smaller keynotes, starting with meetings with two or three people, chairing a meeting with 10, doing a small presentation in a boardroom, and, and just do it lots. Desensitize yourself to that feeling. It will still be there, but what's important is it will no longer be a shock. And the shock is often what causes you to freeze and then everything goes goes negative. So get used to it, get familiar with it. And, and I think that's that's one of the key tricks. And I think when I look back at my martial arts and I look back at the time I spent working the doors, huge number of fearful situations, particularly on the nightclub door scene, um, they, they were all training. It was all training and coaching to expose myself to different levels of fear that I could just get comfortable and familiar with it. Um, when we talk about training, you know, a great example and something I read a while ago was an individual who had been invited to do a 10 minute te- TED talk. And this is applicable to keynotes, but it's applicable to pretty much everything. For a 10 minute TED talk, this individual said that they rehearsed an hour a day for a month, every day for a month to do a 10 minute TED talk. That's like four years of, of training in order to do the Olympic 100 meter sprint, which takes 10 seconds. It's that kind of analogy. You, I think you owe it to the audience and to the people you're meeting and to the subject to be in the best shape possible for that event, whether it's a meeting with a CEO or a keynote. That shows respect to whoever it is you're in the company of. And so do your homework, do your research, do your training. And the result will be that you'll be far more confident of your ability There'll be far fewer gaps and opportunities for those negatives and the doubts to drop in. And the result then will be less fear. But I'd say, you know, just be careful not to try and get rid of fear because it it is there to heighten your senses. It's there to give you that little bit of anxiety. So you do go and do the homework. It's, you know, it actually can be really useful. If I'm not frightened about something, I'm probably in the wrong room. I'm probably, I'm not pushing myself enough. You know, my, my 
my brother Jeff uses this this quote all the time of there's no growth in comfort. If it's comfortable, you're not going to grow. You're not going to develop. You have to put more weight on the bar to build the muscle. It has to be heavy. It has to hurt a little. And so I think that's really important that you um you know you 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 do expose yourself to a little bit of fear and 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 in doing so you'll get comfortable with it and then you'll start to really harness it and use it for greater good. So to to keep with the theme of quotes, I'll leave you with two that I love around fear. <laughs> There's one that says, "Listen to what you know and not what you fear." And I think I could have answered your entire question with just that line. So apologies, but it, it genuinely is. Um, understand your abilities, understand your strengths and weaknesses. Listen to that. Have trust in what you've done. Trust that you've done the homework. Trust you know your subject, and not. The, the fear that attaches to those little negatives and those doubts that you're just allowing your brain to run away with that voice in your head. Um, you know, uh, Jim Lawless is a, is a really good friend of mine and uh, one of the leading motivational speakers on the planet. He, um, he has a, a concept called Taming Tigers and he talks about the tiger in your head, the voice in your head, and you are the one that controls that. You have to overcome that and beat it down with positive thought and positive action. So yeah, I, I'd recommend um, you know everyone looking up Taming Tigers with Jim Lawless, it's fascinating. Uh, the other quote I'll leave you with is, too many people are living their fears and not their dreams. Because if you, if you don't handle and don't get a grip of fear, you will spend your entire life having fear as your master. And it will, it will stop you from doing stuff, it will stop you from taking brave steps, experiencing new things, learning new skills, it will dominate you and and it's it's very easy to say that in a quote it's much harder to actually achieve but the moment you stop living your fears you then open up the world and you can start to live the fun stuff and live your dream so so yeah two very cheesy quotes for you hope uh, hope that's okay very helpful advice l thanks for sharing i appreciate it looking at fear as a biological and chemical process is completely new to me actually Nevertheless, I'm convinced that knowing why my body reacts like it does in such situations will most likely help me in future meetings with CEOs and with keynotes and so on. So thank you for sharing. At this point, I'd like to touch on a few more general questions now. And I'd say let's start with the question, what are your daily, monthly and yearly routines? Uh, yeah, good question, actually. So um Daily, I, I do a lot of lists. I create a lot of lists for things I want to accomplish today and things I want to accomplish this week. Try to prioritize them. But <laughs> I do have a habit of breaking those lists down into lots and lots and lots of subtasks. And the only reason I do that is purely so I feel quick senses of accomplishment. So <laughs> it's kind of cheating the system, but um, the more the more lines on my task list that I can cross off each day, the more I feel I've achieved. So um, it is it is a cheat of the system, but but nevertheless, by creating lists, what it does for me is is it gets all of those jobs out of my head, gets it on paper, and just allows me to not have it consume me. Stuff will run around my head all the time otherwise, so I've got to get it down and, and write the list. And I tend to do that at the end of each day. So what am I doing tomorrow? And that way I can get to sleep then. So I'm not dwelling on it at night, trying to remember everything I need to do. And it's a silly thing, but it does make a difference. Um, then you have bigger lists. So then I start to look at um, setting some goals and objectives, something I'm doing far more now than, than I ever have. 
I've, I, uh, I wouldn't say I've been a free spirit, but certainly my career has taken me um, on a journey that I could never have planned. And in hindsight, I probably should have done. So I'm now looking at, okay, what's, what's the next five, 10, 15 years? And where do I want to get to and how do I get there? And what do I do to be in the best position possible? So creating lists, um, but also setting some big objectives and building plans for them. So yeah, kind of macro lists and micro ones. I, um, but I, I, I never, I, I never beat myself up if I don't tick everything off the list because, you know, hopefully there's always tomorrow. And so, you know, it's, um, yeah, there's plenty of other stuff to worry about. Just, you know, don't, don't worry about your list too much. Um, I'm, I exercise regularly. I try to do, I try to move every day. I try to do something every day. Um, not as much as I used to, certainly back in the martial arts days, but that was my priority one and everything else came second. Now, you know, unfortunately we have, we have more in our lives and I have to be more of an adult. So, but I, I think it's really important. I think um, you've only got one body and if you're lucky, you're blessed with a, with a healthy one, then you, you owe it to yourself to, to protect that. And, and to keep it as healthy and as fit as possible. That is your vehicle for living your dreams, not your fears. That's that's what's gonna get you around and, and help you experience new things. So stay as fit and as healthy as you possibly can. And and I yeah, I think but mostly mental muscle, not phys not physical muscle again. Keep keep the mind active, keep the mind nourished, read good stuff, um, avoid too much of the negative media. You know, it's you understand what you're ingesting mentally as well as physically and, and, and be kind to yourself. And then um, I'd say one of the things, and I touched on it about a plan, but um, one of the books I read a long time ago was from a guy called Ralph de la Vega, a very, very senior um, guy at AT&T who's retired from AT&T now. He has a great book called Obstacles Welcome. And in that he says, set goals that are big enough to require a plan. And, and I think that's so, it, it's such a good, um, such a good analogy or a metaphor or a, approach because the moment you create a plan you're more likely to succeed there is another quote that goes against that though that says a plan is a job half done how many times have we had a great idea i'm going to start this new business and you do your business plan and then you sit back because you it feels like the job's done it's not yet you've just got a plan you haven't even started moving and working on that plan yet so yeah, I think um, I think you need to have big goals, big objectives, and build a plan, and then start to work to it. So that's part of my job now is is to is to keep reviewing my plan. Am I still following it? Am I ticking off those bigger lists, those bigger objectives? And so yeah, uh, daily, uh, monthly, yearly routine for me. Fortunately, right now we're not travelling as much with the racing, so I'm getting to see family and friends more. Um, otherwise, I would be travelling the world a lot and neglecting those that I love the most. So. Um, I'd say don't don't do as I say do as I do on this one but um, I should should be visiting family and friends a lot more and uh, and yeah that would be uh, more of a yearly routine to make sure I, I get around those friends and do and do my visiting but yeah I think um, apart from that I I just you know I'm, I don't usually have too much of a plan apart from those things it's just roll with the punches and uh, deal with each day as it comes have a, and mostly try and have a bit of fun. You just brought up Ralph De La Vega and his book, and maybe we can talk a bit more about books now. And I would like to know which books come to mind that had a great influence on you, and maybe which of these books would you recommend a young person in particular to read? 
Yeah, so um, I'll be honest, I don't read as much as I used to or as much as I should. But uh, I am a big fan of autobiographies, and I think that comes back through all the other stuff we've talked about, trying to understand other people's journeys and learn as much as I can. Uh, I'd start with one of my ultimate heroes on this planet is Ranulph Fiennes, or Sir Ranulph Fiennes, the polar explorer. He's written countless books of all of his expeditions, but one that is... um, one that is particularly good because it captures, I think, about 30 years of his expeditions in one book is a book called Beyond the Limits. And it's it's just a really great book of showing how how we can overcome, how just the extremes we are capable of and the things we can put our bodies through. And, and mostly in, in Sir Ranulph's case and any polar explorer, again, it's mostly about the mental muscle and having that drive and that that dedication to achieve and accomplish. And so, yeah, his stories are just fascinating, what he's gone through and, and what he's shown the human body is capable of. And I think there's there's a lot of inspiration to be taken from that. One of his other books, the, the first book that I ever came across with Ranald uh, Fiennes was a book called The Feathermen, which is more of, um, it's a military-based book and it's more of a fictional book. And, uh, and yeah, I just only because it's one of my earlier books that I just love the story. And so I'd recommend The Feathermen if you can find that. Um, what else? So Dr. Mike Stroud is another interesting one. So he wrote a book called The Survival, Survival of the Fittest. And Dr. Mike Stroud was um, Ralph Fine's companion on a lot of the expeditions. He he was there as a, you know, as a companion to help delivered the expedition but he was also there using uh, Ranulph Fiennes as a, as a human guinea pig to study the impacts of these extreme environments the impacts of pushing your human the human body through so much he wanted to study how does the body cope what do, how does it react what does it do and survival of the fittest is a really good detailed book on on the physiology that and things that happen to the body when you're pushing it really hard and i think that's again you know it's if, if you want to really progress then you need to understand things really deeply and so that book is a really good uh, really good tool for that um one i may have mentioned earlier um is victor frankel uh, man's man's search for meaning would be the book to go for it's it's a harrowing story it's of one man's survival through the holocaust in world war ii he uh is a neuroscientist and he the big or well, for me one of the big messages from that book is about having a strong enough purpose a strong enough reason why and i think to quote him something like he said those who have a, a reason why to live and get through something as extreme as that environment he was in, you can bear almost anyhow. So as long as you've got a strong enough purpose, it doesn't matter what you have to do to get to your end goal. As long as you have a strong enough purpose, you you will you will get there. And I think his book is just it is a it's a tough read, it's a harrowing read, but an inspirational one. And I definitely recommend that. Um, we talked a lot about fear. Um, the manual I would always go back to for understanding fear is actually from my, my brother-in-law, Jeff Thompson's book, Fear, The Friend of Exceptional People. He does a far better job than I ever could of explaining what fear is, what triggers it, the different types of fear we get exposed to now, what's going on in the body and tools and tips and tricks on how we can deal with it and harness it. And um, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend that. That's, uh, that's quite a good manual on that particular subject. 
And then we get into, um, let me think of two more. So Ralph de la Vega, so obstacles welcome. And the reason I mentioned him was because I was really fortunate to be in this in this guy's company a couple of times. He's super senior at AT&T, but had an incredible story of how he came to be in America um, as a young child who couldn't speak the language, was left by his parents because they couldn't get through the border control into America and was left with relatives who he barely knew. And he went from that start in life to one of the most senior people within AT&T. And his book, Obstacles Welcome, charts that journey. It's fascinating, it's inspirational. But, but again, the reason I mention it is because I, I got to meet him a few times and I was fortunate to share the stage with him a few times. And he was just incredibly generous with his time. Um, in my opinion, everything a leader should be. And so he, him and that book has definitely stuck with me and I thank him for that. I actually read it on a flight heading out to Dallas to go and do a keynote with, with um, Ralph de la Vega. And um, so I thought I'd buy his book and I read it on the flight, couldn't put it down. And I got to the other end and then I presented it to ask him to sign it. And uh, so I thought it was a bit cheeky and a bit cheesy, but it worked. And um, yeah, I've got, I've got my signed book. So thanks, Ralph. Um, the last one, an absolute legend is Muhammad Ali, uh, obviously from my love of boxing and love of sport. But doesn't matter whether you're into boxing, you cannot deny what this man brought to the world. And uh, there's a great book, Soul of a Butterfly. It just, there's so many lessons in there and you just get a little taste of what this man was. It was just an incredible book to read. So um, yeah, and then I think I just mentioned earlier, Taming Tigers by Jim Lawless. Great book, a great instructional guide from a man who's used the principles he writes about and demonstrated them by doing some amazing physical achievements. It, you know, kind of, they were saying, you know, you've got to eat, you've, you have to eat your own dog food. So if you're going to, if you're going to profess to someone, this is what you should do to be successful. How about you do it yourself and show the world? And that's exactly what Jim did. So, um, you know, they say never take advice from a fat lifestyle coach. So um, Jim, Jim is, Jim is the, uh, the example of, his lessons work because he's, he's he's demonstrated it on many occasions so yeah i definitely recommend taming tigers by jim lawless and um i think that's probably my <laughs> that's probably my library right there that's a lot to dig into and for all the listeners i will add the names and the titles in the show notes so you can easily look these up last question for today al is what would you tell your 25 year old self um, well, obviously, that wasn't too long ago. So um, <laughs> um, actually, no, frighteningly, it was. Um, it's, re it's a real cliche, but I, the first thing I'd say is don't change anything. You know, I've made good decisions and bad decisions, but ultimately, they've all led me to where I am today. So and I'm yeah, pretty happy with where I am. So I think, you know, it's not worked out all too bad. Um, but I would say be, be brave and, and be courageous and have trust that it will work because back when I was 25 or maybe younger some decisions i was about to embark on were incredibly scary but yet you know they turned out to be great so i would you know i'd say take still take the brave route you know be courageous you can't have fear without having you know you can't have courage without having fear so you you can't be brave unless the situation is fearful so you've got to embrace those opportunities and um, but don't beat yourself up if you back away from a fearful opportunity because Trust me, life will bring another one right in front of you the next day. Life's great at presenting you with opportunities. So don't worry if you're, don't beat yourself up if you, if you, I don't know what I'd say is bottle it or if you back away, just hang on. There'll be another chance to, to have another go at it another day. 
And, and as a result, I'd say be patient. I see a lot, particularly in young engineers that I deal with now, there's a lot of um, wanting it all now and being in a rush. And we live in this incredibly fast life and an incredibly fast paced world. And we want everything now at our fingertips. And, and I think you just, sometimes you just got to step back a little, have a bit of faith, have a bit of patience. Not everyone can drop into Formula One straight out of university. Sometimes you have to take a different windy route, a bit like I did, and you have to, you know, just just take your time and, and, and work towards it. Set the plan, have the goal, and and work towards it, but have some patience. And and I'd definitely say have more fun. I took myself far too seriously. So, you know, look for the fun stuff as well as the uncomfortable stuff. You've got there are days you've got to reward yourself and sit in the comfy chair, you know, and and yeah, I'd I'd say definitely have more fun. Probably to summarize, I'd say just work hard but with a purpose. I will quote you one last quote from my very good friend, Tony Terranova, who is um, a martial artist friend of mine, inspirational guy. And he says, chase your passion, not your pension. So do the stuff you love. It'll make for a far happier life. And guess what? You'll probably end up being really successful at it because you'll do it a lot. So chase your passion, not your pension. And finally, I would tell myself to call my parents more because I'm terrible for not calling my parents. and that would be it, I think. And those would be the perfect closing words for today, I guess. Al, this has been extremely fun. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation that we had today. And maybe, do you have anything further to add before we wrap up? Um, no, I think, well, firstly, apologies for talking so much. Um, I appreciate your ears may be bleeding now, so apologies for that. Um, I, you know, It's been great to reconnect. I appreciate you reaching out. I'm very flattered you would ask me to do this because um, you know, I don't think there's a, there's a great story here at all, but I appreciate you giving me the chance to, uh, to talk to you for, for hours on end. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd just say you know, thanks to the listeners for listening. And um, I'd say if, I, if I've been able to offer anything at all that's positive, great. Um, but if not, then my apologies for taking up a couple of hours of your life. <laughs> but yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I had a lot of fun and I learned a lot of stuff from your elaborations today. So I enjoyed it a lot. And um, last question for today would be if people would like to reach out to you, where can they find you online? Uh, yeah, I guess on social media, the, I'm, I'm Al Peasland, both Twitter and LinkedIn. You'll find me there. Um, Don't spam me. I can't get everyone a job in Formula One. So, but, you know, please reach out if you want to. I'm always good to make new contacts. Cool. So, Al, thank you for your time. And to everybody listening, thank you for tuning in. And that's it for today. Until next time. <laughs>